David Yaffe is a music critic, professor of humanities at Syracuse University, and the author of Reckless Daughter, A Portrait of Joni Mitchell. This is David Yaffe. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tech. Uh, I'm here with David Yaffe. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you wrote a book, you're a music critic, and you've written uh, a couple books and uh, a lot of great articles about music. And one book in particular that I really wanted to talk to you about and that I really enjoyed is uh, Reckless Daughter mm-hmm. about uh, Joni Mitchell. And first, uh, I'm kind of curious because uh, Don Juan's Reckless Daughter, mm-hmm. I, I believe it's it, it's um, it's not necessarily like Joni Mitchell's most like popular album. Why right. why go with this title? Do you just feel like it was fitting? You know, I uh, a couple of years ago, I found myself at the birthday party of a, of a writer that I really admire, but we'd never met. And um, he came up to me, and the first thing he said to me was, favorite Joni Mitchell album, go. And I said, I don't know, all of them. He said, come on. I said, Hijira? And then he said, eh. the correct answer is Court and Spark. Okay. The reason why I'm telling you this is because I thought about it after this confrontation. And um, I thought, really, it's the songwriting of Hijira, but it's the wild musicianship of Delmon's Reckless Daughter. I, I find that there's nothing like it anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that the the songs are, are more solid on Hegira, and I love Hegira. I love everything about it. Of course, I love Jocko's playing on it, and I love I love everything about Hegira. But um, Dalman's Reckless Daughter stretches out more. It also happens that um, I discovered Dalman's Reckless Daughter before I discovered Hegira. It was actually the first. It was the second one that I discovered after Blue. Hmm. Uh, I was at um, I was 15. I was at Half Price Books in Dallas. And um, that's where I got a lot of my vinyl when I was in high school. And um, and so there was a vinyl of uh, Dalman's Reckless Daughter. I had no idea who the black dude on the cover was. It took me years to figure that one out. Uh, and I didn't really think about it. I didn't really think about blackface or any of that stuff. I didn't just wasn't on my radar at all. Um, I figured it must be some musician that's on the record. I just didn't, but I didn't put a lot of thought into it. Yeah. Um, but um, but I was learning about the greatness of Jaco Pistorius. I was learning about that because I went to an arts high school that had an excellent jazz program. And in fact, Jocko was on my jazz band director's uh, senior thesis at Miami. Hmm. So... And then also uh, Pat Matheny came to talk to us and he um, was also on that thesis at, at Miami. And so um, so I was this just represented everything that I was learning about. And, you know, I, I and of course, I, I fell in love with a lot of music after that that blew my mind in many different kinds of ways. 
but there was nothing quite like Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. And when I think about it in terms of songs, like I love the sound of Cotton Avenue. The lyrics are just okay. I don't think the lyrics are a great Johnny Mitchell song, but the sound is incredible. And the, the, the first time I put that record on, I was supposed to be studying for a test. Good luck with that. Right. I, you know, I thought I'd clean my room and study for a test and listen to my new record. I mean, my mind was being blown. It was unbelievable what I was hearing. That first moment when you hear Joni play these gorgeous chords, the overture alone is really remarkable. You hear those gorgeous chords, which don't sound like anybody else's chords. And, and then when Jocko's bass first comes in and makes that initial statement, it's heaven. And of course, when you're that young, you don't know what's ahead of you. You don't know. You don't know what else is out there. Yeah. And I feel like when you when you live in a world where there's no internet, it's much more mysterious. And oh. and the, you go to the record store, you see all these records there. You can't afford very many of them. You can only afford one or two at a time. And you can't listen to them ahead of time. And so I, mystery is everywhere. And I really, you know, it didn't occur to me that no matter how far I looked, there would be nothing quite like this. There were things that I'd be loved, that I would love in different ways for, for different reasons. But that this particular thing of Jocko creeping up on Joni like that. And then when she sings, it's just also glorious. And I think that of all the um, of the songs on that album, oh, you know, of course, I love Talk To Me. And I feel like it's not, it's not, it's not, I mean, it's meant to be kind of frivolous. It's not meant to be a serious song. It's not on the level of most of those Hegira songs. I mean, like the most lighthearted Hegira song is um, Blue Motel Room. Mm -hmm. and, and the rest of them are quite serious and 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 quite ambitious and great works of art every single one of them um the the songwriting is not as consistently great as that but god the musicianship on it there's nothing like it and and uh, and, and the ambition of paprika <laughs> plays she never did anything that ambitious again she or before or since she never did anything like that let me ask you. And, and, and the lyrics on Paprika Plains are extraordinary. The, that those lyrics are really fantastic. Yes. Paprika Plains. That was like the last one that I really got to because it was, you know, I had it on vinyl and it took up a side on the record. And I heard this orchestra and I thought, eh, this isn't for me at first. It took a while for mm -hmm. me to realize how amazing it was and, and in fact how it's actually the greatest piece it's the greatest thing on the whole record and, and and then and then Jocko comes on at the end Jocko and Wayne and Garen come in at the end um the mirrored ball yeah yeah I, okay so one, one thing on that note of mysteriousness uh and sort of shocking you and this is something that what, what year were 
uh, you said you were 15, but what year was this when you were listening that to it? That was in 1988. Okay. Something that has always, uh, I've always been curious about is how in retrospect, like from where I'm sitting today yes. uh, as a child of the 90s and now it's, you know, 2023, um, yes. something like Joni Mitchell, I love her work, but I'm mm. not... Um, I'm not shocked by it in the same way that, um, and this is not necessarily the reaction that she got, but when I hear about stories of like uh, when Stravinsky, you know, uh, performed one of his uh, symphonies and people right. were throwing chairs at the, at the stage. And well, it was the know, ballet because the ballet was pornographic. Um, yeah. yeah. So I, yes. Um, but of course, in any case, uh, people were, were, uh, yeah. And one example, but people, you know, have in general reacted. How about Dylan? How about Dylan, how about Dylan at Newport? There's a movie. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Or like new descending a staircase. People are like freaking out over it. And nowadays that's not, it's interesting, but it's not something that I look at and go, oh my God, how could anyone have contemplated doing this? Um, in terms of the shocking quality, and one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you as a, as a serious music critic is what is it about uh, her work that was perceived as being original musically at the time? I think it was too much for people to even take in. I think there was so much going on at once that it was hard for people to even articulate what it was. And Joni was producing so much, so fast, so much great, great work that she didn't really have time to look back on it. I'll give you an example. Um, when we talked about Mingus, um, my friend who recently died, Sue Mingus, um, Mingus's widow, it was her idea to bring in Joni Mitchell for the final project because they wanted it to sell. And mm -hmm. they thought, oh, she's interested in jazz now. Maybe she'd do this. Um, and, um, but they, but they wanted her to think that she was being summoned by the great man himself. And she knew nothing about Charles Mangus, like nothing. Hmm. She was into Miles. Her dream was that Miles would summon her, but this is what it was. Um, and Garen, who was her boyfriend at the time was like, motherfucker you're getting to do this and you don't even know who he is. Do you know how many of us love him? You know, but, but she's, a, she was a very, very quick study and, and she wrote amazing lyrics. And the reason why I, I, I'm telling you this is because I asked her, the, it would already be daunting to be approached by Charles Mingus to write his epitaph with him. That's a big deal. Yeah. Um, but he was also dying of ALS and he would soon lose his ability to speak. Not just write music down or play bass and to even speak. I mean, his, his entire motor functions were completely being attacked. And and it's it's, it's a terrible, terrible disease. And, and I just said, you know, did you feel that you were writing against the clock? Like, did you feel daunted by this? She said, no, I didn't feel daunted. 
because I'm just always thinking about what's happening. Hmm. And I thought that that is an interesting key to what makes Joni Mitchell that like she's because I think she's still doing it now. She's just thinking about what's happening. And um, I think the rest of us that kind of worry and fret over things and waste a lot of time doing that. And she just kind of moves forward, does what she's compelled to do. It's it's I wish I could be more like her in that sense. Um, I would get a lot more done. Um, but I try to be more like that. I try to use her as an as an inspiration. Um, but um, and so she wasn't necessarily the one to to reflect on what was unique about her contribution that was left to others and and most people didn't really get it even the people that adored her i think they couldn't quite put it in words even the late david crosby he he realized that she was incredible he realized that she was better than him he he realized that he wanted to get into a love affair with her which he did for a little while um but um i mean i think he knew music well enough to know that he could have probably broken it down but he never did break it down but i think he in his mind he broke it down he could hear the open tunings he could hear the uh, overtones in the open tunings uh and the resonances and and then if, and then the lyrics which were unlike anybody else's lyrics from the from the word go and and i and of course part of it is because songwriting was dominated by men and even female singers tended to write songs that were written by men there were a few exceptions but that was usually the way even like carol king wrote the music and jerry goffin wrote the lyrics jerry goffin wrote the lyrics to you make me feel like a natural woman <laughs> it's a wonderful song and i love it and you know but but Think about that, that Jerry Goffin yeah. wrote the lyrics to you make me feel like a natural woman. And so Joni, like I just recently taught Cactus Tree, for example. Yeah. And, um, and, and the fact that like, okay, she's aware that there are all these men that are interested in her. Let's just not choose. You know, there's a sailor, there's a dreamer, there's a this, there's a that. Just let them all come and show their love, and and I'm gonna be busy being free. Nobody had done anything like that before. Nobody. Yeah. And and and, and apart from that aspect of it, was also the astonishing beauty of it. You know, like if you hear, just for example, since you know we both survived the '90s. Um, Liz Fair is a good example of someone that like sounds really rude. She wants to sound rude. That's her, that's her point. That's what she wants to do. And so, you know, she's singing like fucking run and stuff like that, you know, and it's like this kind of like, yeah, I don't need you. Fuck you. Exile in Guyville, you know, like, I mean, it's great. That's the nineties. When I think of that, I think of the nineties and it's great. Yeah. But I mean, she, she did more of that later, but certainly like, in her in her peak years and the first 10 albums um she, she had to make it beautiful she just had to 
you said something in the uh, in the book that uh, she had like this innate sensibility for what was hip and also what was like commercial. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because uh, listening to her music, at least from where I'm sitting, it doesn't appear to be like innately super commercial and like sugar coated or uh, like a top, you know, five hit, although I think it should be. Um, and she also had some. Wait, I. We're not. You froze, so I lost. Could you repeat oh, that? Yes. Um, I was just saying. Um, <clears throat> it her music, even though I think it should be super successful, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's designed to be super commercial. And her some of her interests musically, like jazz, are definitely not super right. commercial. Was there any like tension there or how did she navigate that? Well, I mean, even though I know she didn't really think very much of Judy Collins, she was lucky to have Judy Collins because Judy Collins started her career. And Judy Collins found a commercial way to get both sides now across in 1967, 68, I guess 68 was when it was released. It was recorded in 67, it was released in 68. Um, but, But she... And, and and it was used very effectively on an episode of Mad Men, and you know you really got the feel for that period and what was commercial in 1968, as opposed to what we think of when we think of 1968. We we could think of Song to a Seagull, we could think of Beggar's Banquet, we could think of the White Album, Bookends, things like that. But when but when you think of the things that were on the charts, the, they were they didn't sound like that. They they sounded more like Judy Collins, or they sounded more like. Um, they, they 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 sounded more like the lemon pipers or something you know they sounded like the monkeys i mean that was most of the stuff that was on the charts uh they sounded more like you know richard harris singing macarthur park or something like that or melanie or you know it just uh and and one of the great contributions that crosby did even though he said he didn't really know how to produce a record which was true but he had enough pull with Mo Austin and, and Reprise to keep everything off that record. He just wanted it to sound like the experience he had at um, the Gaslight South and in, in Miami and uh, Coconut Grove. And when he she blew him away, he he wanted everybody just to feel like they were sitting in a club. Why was this counterintuitive? Because you know the first Simon and Garfunkel was acoustic guitar and vocal. The early Dylan records were acoustic guitar and vocal. That was the early 60s. Joan Baez, acoustic guitar and vocal, early 60s. This was not the sound of 1968. 1968 was rock and roll. It was strings. It was brass. It was production. Uh, and, And he had to persuade the label to let him do it this way. And if it wasn't for David Crosby, then that album would have had big, goopy strings on it. And maybe it would have been interesting, but it probably wouldn't have been the vision that she had. Because I think that she had a vision, because she obviously she worked with orchestras later, but initially she had a vision that, and Crosby also had a vision that um, she was creating an orchestra with, an, with, with just acoustic guitar and vocal. And that mm-hmm. you didn't need any of that other stuff. She, I think, Crosby wanted people to hear the musicianship, to hear the writing. And she wanted people to hear the writing. She had no power. So she needed him as an advocate. 
Yeah. She couldn't well, tell them anything. When you talk to her um, and from the, the people around her that you talk to, did she speak much about how her synesthesia impacted her songwriting? Well, she talked about her synesthesia. She didn't talk about it in relationship to a song, I don't think, but she talked about it. And she, like to the point where like the conversation that we were having, she could see different colors. I said, are these colors like coming to you as we're speaking? Like when you hear certain letters, these colors are coming out. And she said, yes. And there's such elaborate colors. There were chartreuse. There were, it was just endless. Like these, these, yeah. these, these elaborate colors. Um, they, they weren't primary colors. They, 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 you know, they were like painterly colors. They were, they were like mixed colors. Um, and so I think that's something that she was just hearing like all the time. Yeah. all the time i think she still hears it probably unless she's forgotten it because i know she's forgotten something but uh, but it's possible that she still has it but uh but the song that i teach to show um students her synesthesia is marcy from song to a seagull okay so because every, you know red, reds are sweet and greens are sour you know everything has a color in that song it's a story of a of a sad girl who is waiting for a, let, a letter that never comes, but um, um, but but the whole thing has colors, and the girl doesn't have synesthesia. Joni has synesthesia, so she's missing out on all this stuff. But Joni, the writer, she sees it. Interesting. Okay, so she has more of a in terms of the form of synesthesia that she has. It's uh, like words having color association interesting oh yeah no i mean it's, it's involuntary yeah involuntary association like with every letter she hears i it translates into a color like all the time like colors yeah. are coming out of my mouth do you think that's overwhelming time. yes yeah yeah i do i do and i and, and i think that sort of thing probably drove van gogh crazy you know totally. that, that that it was just too everything was too present and too vivid, you know? And I feel like, you know, you turn the dial on somebody just slightly and, and everything affects them so differently. I mean, mm -hmm. Jody could have been a tragic character if, if she, she, she could have been more like Judy Sill or Nick Drake or yeah. Elliot Smith, you know? Totally. Um, if you just turn that dial a little bit, obviously she knew how to tap into that melancholy. And obviously she went through periods of instability. That's what produced blue. But um, but there was a resilience about her, my God. Obviously she had a resilience that Judy still didn't have, Elliot Smith didn't have. Uh, yeah, I, I'm also know. thinking of... Right. Um, and, and I don't know uh, how you feel about this character, but another prominent uh, musician who's kind of gone off the rails who has synesthesia is Kanye West. Right. And it seems like Joni Mitchell has also this like verbal facility where mm -hmm. she can recognize, oh, I have a different way of like processing the world than other people. Like, yeah. let me explain that to people. Yeah. Whereas you see some other people who have that and, and it just... It, the stuff that comes out of their mouth is 
clearly not interfacing with the world properly. So it's yeah. it is fascinating to think of changing the dial and certain character attributes of her. Yes. No, I think that's right. I mean, if you if you if 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 you turned the dial on Kanye slightly, maybe he'd be donating to Bidet Brith. Right. Yeah. Totally. This is the way he. This is the way that the Kanye West show has presented itself. Yeah. yeah. Um. You mentioned the uh the open tunings. Was this the the consequence of a uh, polio as a child? Completely, completely, and that's an astonishing thing about her is that she, she takes things that happen to her and she turns it into art. I feel like she's doing it now. She's doing it right now, um, because um, she tried so hard to quit smoking. She could never quit smoking. Larry Klein told me that he was, she was so impossible to be around that he begged her to start smoking again. And the only thing that could get her off of cigarettes was the aneurysm. Wow. You know, and, and she told Graham Nash after the aneurysm, she told Graham Nash that she forgot that she smoked. Mm. Right. So um that's pretty amazing. She she, I know. she forgot that she smoked. So but 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 so so she turns this awful event and aneurysm into something that like gives her this astonishing voice. I couldn't believe it at, at, at Newport last summer. Um, I mean, that was the clearest her voice had been since um, Wild Things Run Fast. It, it's, it's deeper. It's 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 an alt. It's a, it's like a it's a baritone almost. It's a deeper voice. Um, and I don't know if she has access to the soprano anymore at all. But but what she's doing with her uh, alto register and maybe even a little bit of baritone register, it's so clear and powerful. Mm. It, you know, she's going to be 80 years old in November. And I saw her sing um, at Massey Hall to, for an event celebrating her 70th birthday 10 years ago. And... Um, she could barely get through two songs. And yeah. at Newport, she sang an entire set with Brandy Carlisle. And her voice was strong and powerful. Yeah. So she took this awful thing that happened and turned it into something that where she benefited creatively. That just is kind like, of just like the polio, just like the polio. Yeah, exactly. Where she um she couldn't do she she didn't have the strength or whatever in her, her left hand to do like the right. traditional tuning that's right um, so she couldn't like she she got the pete seeger book it was the same book that dylan learned from it was the same book that my father learned from um and um my father learned from pete seeger's banjo book and um she couldn't do the first thing and the first thing was this thing called cotton picking elizabeth cotton was this black woman who was the the, the housekeeper for the seeger family and she taught pete this this uh, one five pattern um on on the on the banjo and it was called cotton picking she called i think she just called it that cotton picking because her name was elizabeth cotton and uh that was the first thing and 
the book. And uh, Joni couldn't do it because of the weakness in her um, left hand. Yeah. Polio. So she had to she had to figure out a way to play that wasn't about what was going on in the frets. It was all about the right hand because her right hand was still very strong. And so she just kind of fooled around and, and instinctively came upon this way of tuning, which is a pain in the ass before she had Jill Bernstein as her guitar tuner. Um, and she had to do it herself. You can hear on the recordings that they, they were released on that um, archive set recently um and you hear the way she would tell an incredibly charming story that would last exactly three minutes and while during that three minutes she would tune for the next three songs mm. and then she'd have to tell another charming story and tune for the next three you know she'd have yeah. to do it again so for, for someone who's not a guitar player what what exactly is going on there in terms and of i'm not a guitar player either i'm a piano player but um i um usually guitar players will look at what's going on in the frets mm -hmm. to see what chords are being played. And so if there's some kind of like a hootenanny or a jam session or whatever, um, and they want to just spontaneously play with other guitar players, they, they look at the frets. But in the case of Joni, looking at the frets is a waste of time because it's not going on in the frets. It's going on um, on the other end of the guitar. And um, it's, it's, um, I mean, and there and there are other people who have done it. There's a guy named Michael Hedges who has done it. Um, and there are blues musicians who did it. Um, and the, the the unintended consequence, though, is that this kind of tuning brings out the overtones of the guitar more. Okay. So, like, you hear, and you, you might not be aware of it, but there's something going on in a Joni Mitchell chord that sounds different from most chords that are on standard tuning. Almost everybody else plays in standard tuning. So like um, when, 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 when a chord resounds, um, I mean, I just, I just have my, my keyboard here, but um, there are, um, there are implied notes. Yeah. Right. I mean, the piano and this, I, I, this is a digital piano, so this doesn't happen, but uh, um, uh, a, a traditional piano has um, strings that um, produce overtones when a note resounds. So you could play, play a chord. Say here's a G, here's an E major chord, right? Well, Joni likes to do a lot of these suspended chords, right? And then it, and then it, and then it resonates, and then the, and then you have this clash between E. And D major. And she has a lot of these suspended chords. And uh, of course, she doesn't know the names of chords. She has no formal training at all as a musician. Her training is as a painter, not as a musician. Um, so um, she calls them chords of inquiry. And she calls wow. them because. There are all these unresolved things in her life. Um, you know, where is my daughter? You know, she didn't, she gave up her daughter. She didn't know where she was for 32 years. You know, so that's going on in her. And then also, 
a lot of reluctance to a lot of other things, you know? You know, she loved Graham Nash. She had to turn him down for marriage. She said yes at first, and then she changed her mind. You know, it's cause of inquiry. She knew that as a woman, she would be at a disadvantage. She knew it, and she tried to deal with things as a male rock star as long as she could. Now look at Mick Jagger. Still popping out babies. He's 80 years old. <laughs> yeah. You know, still banging models in their 20s. Well, Which, like, you know, on, on the one hand, there are people who go like, oh, see, look at the freedom they get to have. And, like, that's true. But on the other hand, it's like, I wouldn't want to be that in my 80s as much as I, I like the music. Um, yeah. I think that, like, the path that Joni has taken seems to be, like, a more, um, I don't know, meaningful one, maybe. Well, Joni, I, I think Joni has more of an appetite for um for solitude than, than most, you know, probably more than either of us. I mean, not that I, not that I really know you very well, but, but I have a feeling that probably she has more of an app because she has more of an appetite for solitude than most people. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't want to be alone at age 80. Really. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, there's that too. I mean, there's. I, I mean, she's not married, but is she alone? Yeah, her last relationship was um with this guy Donald Freed, who was a, a librarian and an aspiring singer songwriter, and uh, they actually wrote um, a song together on um, Taming the Tiger called "The Crazy Cries of Love." Um. And they broke up on on 9-11, actually. Um, wow. They 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 um they'd taken a trip to Mexico and um so he took a bunch of pictures and then she was like taking the pictures and making a collage out of them. And he just said he said oh that's just like you you take something i did and then you turn it into your own thing and then they had this argument and like they're watching the twin towers burn down live on television and they break up whoa and yeah. she had that, that was her last relationship but not even in terms of romantic relationships. I mean, do, does she have close friendships and things like that that are like a, a regular presence in her life? Or I, I don't even—I've never been. Well, she's surrounded by people. I mean, yeah. they're, they're, she's surrounded by people taking care of her, and um, it was interesting. Like when when um, she was first in the hospital, she'd always said that she preferred the company of men. She always like the top tier friends were men. And uh, the men were not the ones that were sleeping on the floor of the hospital. It wasn't the men. Yeah. It was the, it was the women, the women I'd never heard of. The women who were like in the second tier or third tier of friends who were sleeping on the floor in the hospital. 
you know, and uh, that, and I just think, um, um, I know I, she's, she's surrounded by a lot of people who love her. Yeah. A lot of people. And, um, and the concert with Brandy Carlisle was a, an outgrowth of jam sessions that she would have at her house. That's, that's how that all got started. And uh, and so she had a wonderful time doing those jam sessions, and, and she had a wonderful time at Newport. And I suspect she'll have a wonderful time at, at the Gorge. Um, and and I think it's June. Um, one thing I think that's really funny about it is that like this theater and this amphitheater in Washington State, it's in the middle of nowhere, and it is apparently an incredibly beautiful place and um but she put it in a place where like you can't stay at a hotel and go there there hmm. are no hotels you have to camp out to go yeah so it's like she's making everybody go to woodstock that's pretty cool yeah that's funny like the woodstock that she didn't go to it's like she's finally having woodstock in a way all these people that are going and they're paying a lot of money for tickets too. Yeah. And um they're they're camping out. They're camping out to see a Joni Mitchell concert. Oh yeah. I mean if you're it's a fan yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean and like their 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 phones are gonna run out. <laughs> yeah. There's not gonna be a place for them to charge their phones. Yeah. That's what she wants that. She yeah. wants people to like not be able to charge their phones. And deal with humanity and take in this music and have this experience and have, I'm sure, have a different kind of experience with each other because they're not going to have their phones. They can't tweet about it. Yeah. They can't, post, cool. they, they can't post on social in any way. They just have the experience. Are, do you know if you're going? I don't think I'm going. I am. I'm. I'm writing a preview for it. Um, I write for this website called Airmail, and uh, if they had been willing to send me out their expenses, of course I would have gone. Yeah. Um, although, I uh, I did like some. I did some camping when I was 21 because I had to. Like. The, the the um the woman who I became my wife um we we were like hitchhiking around Vermont and camping in Vermont and like in in August before our senior year in college and um that was enough camping for me <laughs> I mean I'm glad, I'm glad I did that but you know I just it's just hard to imagine camping, but I mean, I would have used that. I would, I would have written about how how crazy this was. Yeah, and you know, just I mean, it would have been insane. I would have written about the insanity of it if I oh. if I if somebody had flown me out there and paid my expenses. But uh, you know, um, well, I, I wanted to ask you. Um, you mentioned how hard she found it to quit smoking mm. and this is something that i am trying to wrap my mind around because she seemed very dedicated to her art was very it is very dedicated to her art 
And yet this is like one of a handful of things that she could do that would like seriously jeopardize her ability to at least sing. So was this, was it anything deeper than just, ah, I started smoking when I was a kid and now I'm addicted or or was there some self-destructive something going on? Well, she was uh, really somebody that created her own reality, you know? And so, you know, like she got, she got pregnant with Larry Klein for a little while um, unexpectedly. And, and, and they were both very thrilled about this. It was, it was completely unexpected. Um, and then she had a miscarriage, but before the miscarriage, um, you know, she, she insisted on smoking. And she said, well, we'll just have to pretend that we live in a time when they didn't know it was bad. So that's how intense it was. I mean, I mean, she, you know, she's putting the life of her baby at stake. Yeah. That, that's how hardcore it was. That's pretty hardcore. Yes. Um, um, you know, I mean, addiction is a hell of a hell of a thing. And um, cigarettes are extremely addictive. <laughs> and um, if you've been hooked on them since age nine, you know, you just think, I can't think without cigarettes. Like, I can't make this wonderful Joni Mitchell art that you love so much without the cigarettes. I can't. Oh, was that part of it? Hmm? Well, was that part of it? that she felt it aided creativity yes yes i think she thought she couldn't focus without cigarettes she couldn't think without cigarettes she couldn't be Joni mitchell without cigarettes she couldn't be this great marathon talker without cigarettes and i don't think she's much of a marathon talker anymore um but cigarettes are part of it you know um and I have to say that there is something extremely pleasing hearing her voice um, just throughout the 70s. There's something very extremely pleasing watching her voice become deeper with the cigarettes. I mean, after a while, you know, there's less and less she can do with it. But I also find something extremely pleasing hearing some of the later records and the way she was singing on those. I mean, I... I, I I appreciate that range. I appreciate that she could do it when she could do when she when she could do it. But then when she <laughs> was limited, she did such incredible things with those limitations. Yeah. And uh, and also it's because I mean, look, she's like getting human experiences across to you. And so you know when she so with the younger voice, she sings about these younger experiences, and they're amazing. And then with the older voice. She's doing the same thing with what it means to be, you know, in her 50s. Yeah. Um, and I love, you know, God, I, I, I really love Night Ride Home, especially of the later albums. And I love like Two Gray Room. That, that, that song wouldn't have made any sense with the younger voice. That, that's an older person's lament. And and it's great, and uh, that whole album is incredible. And then like it's Turbulent Indigo, my God, couldn't imagine those songs being sung in a different voice. No, you know, Sex Kills, Sire of Sorrow, 
Um, the song Turbulent and Indigo is like one of the greatest things she ever wrote. And it makes sense with that smoky voice. Mm. You know, it wouldn't have made sense with the younger voice. So it's it's sort of like, I mean, I feel that way about Dylan too, that like, you know, they just released the time out of mind outtakes. And um, you know, those songs wouldn't have made sense in a, in a younger man's voice. You know, it had to be but Dylan in, in his mid-50s. You know, and he'd been a smoker too, obviously. Yeah. And, um, and you, 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 you want to hear somebody that's like been battered. You know, that's how you're feeling. That, that's how the world seems to you. Not everything is young. Not everything is pristine. And uh, of course, obviously, you can tell the people that have taken good care of their voices into their eighties: Judy Collins, Joan Baez. Paul Simon. Uh, Paul Simon's voice is exquisite. You, you can't believe he's 80 years old and can, and can sing that well. It's, it's, it's quite astonishing. But I mean, I feel like the most brilliant things in that music aren't really about the delivery. They're about rhythm and they're about the lyrics and they're about the, 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 the composition. Um, but they're not necessarily about like the I think that there's something in the voice that seems like it's wise and that it knows something. So that is a powerful thing. But I know that he felt competitive with Dylan about not having like a mystery to him. Dylan was a mystery to people. Those, those lyrics, they meant like a million different things to every single person. Everything he sang had multiple meanings and he felt that he couldn't do that. He thought, he always sounded sincere. Mm. Um, he always sounded sincere. And, and it's true though. And, and, and so, and I think Joni is more like Dylan. I think like, I mean, I think Joni, like you do hear all these meanings all the time. And, um, and also it's because the harmonic information is so rich. And, um, and, 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 but especially that the emotional content, that's the thing that you really get with Joni. I mean, like, and, I, and I'm I'm a big Paul Simon fan, but um, you know, I feel like the songs that are sad are sort of like a commentary on sadness. You don't hear him being sad when he's singing. You hear him being Paul Simon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like Hearts and Bones is a very sad song, or like She Moves On is a very sad song, but but you but you hear is Paul Simon. And you hear the brilliance of the song and the beauty of the song. But with Joni Mitchell, you you hear her fully inhabiting this thing. It's you can't make that up. You can't try it. You know? Totally. Yeah, it makes me think of the uh sort of like the late Johnny Cash, what you're saying. Oh yeah. His voice is just like feels like it's torn apart. It's this old man. It is. And like I I mean, I, I sometimes wonder about this kind of savant quality with him and Rick Rubin. Um, like how much he was aware of the way he was being heard, you know, like, um, like for example, like personal Jesus, this is a perfect example. Um, you know, I'm a child of the eighties. I remember when that Depeche Mode record was around, I thought it was fine, you know, but when I heard Johnny Cash sing it, I was like, oh my God, like, I think he, He's hearing, he's hearing the corruption 
of these of these TV preachers. They're fake. And and that, and that's what the Depeche Mode meant by the song. They hated Pat Robertson and all that stuff. It was like a fuck you to Pat Robertson and all of that. But Johnny Cashman was a man of faith. So I don't know if he was aware. You know what I mean? I I I, yeah. I think I think he was being kind of sincere, but like, but the way he was doing it, like he sort of summoned this evil. And I think it was, I kind of wonder if if he even realized the way we were hearing it. Because hmm. to me, anyway, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking when he was making those records, but except I just know that like Rick Rubin had a very heavy hand in them. And I know like Dylan didn't like the Rick Rubin Johnny Cash records. Really? No. No. Because well, because he loved Johnny Cash so much. And and because like to him, like it's the majesty of Walk the Line and you know, Big River and stuff like that. I, I just think that to him was like the great Johnny Cash and and like this old guy. He he felt like this old guy was being exploited or something. Oh, he, like he couldn't even listen to them, which was kind of interesting because by the time Johnny Cash died, Dylan was that old guy. He was already an old guy, but I think he wanted to be in charge of his stuff. And um, like Dylan, Dylan was already old. He sounded old already. He sounded old for a long time. Yeah, he sounded old when he wasn't old. I mean, it's amazing to think he made Oh Mercy when he was forty-seven, and he already had the late style. At 47. Yeah. You know, whereas like Paul Simon can be 80 and sound the same because he didn't smoke. Right. Which kind of makes me think, and this is where the sort of software engineer brain of mine takes me and like, okay, well, when we get to like really good vocal modifications mm-hmm. of uh, like right now, like pitch correction sounds kind of bad. Mm-hmm. Um, there are things like auto tune, which like is an effect unto itself. But if you could just, if Paul Simon could sing, sort of modulate his voice to sound older or smokier or whatever, um, maybe he could. People could play around with those effects more. Um, That's funny. I mean, the thing where I actually do feel that those are just, <clears throat> to me that technology has been pretty decent for a while. I mean, just to give you a couple of examples, one is about Joni. I remember on the radio i was like with the girlfriend who introduced me to joni mitchell and we're like listening live on the radio to um roger waters doing the wall at the berlin wall mm. and joni was at that concert and she sang um goodbye blue sky and um we heard this live and we we're like oh my god like we thought her singing was terrible and we were so upset about this and um but then i saw it on tape and her singing was fine they they fixed it and that was 1990 yeah. they knew how to fix your voice in 1990 and but but more recently um you know the last time i saw elvis costello in concert which was last summer like i could see the damage that had happened to his vocal cords and it was like a hard thing to accommodate because it wasn't like it wasn't a matter of just transposing to a more comfortable key. It was because there were damage, there's damage in certain parts, like in the middle. It wasn't just like, like he still had things at the top and he still had things at the bottom, but there were things at the middle that he struggled with. But when you hear the records, he sounds great. Yeah. You would never know anything was wrong from the records. 
Um, and so I feel like pitch correction is, I think it's like indecipherable. Yeah. They can, they can do it in ways where you have no idea anything's been changed. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and that was even true in 1990 with, with what they did with Joni's voice. I mean, that nobody would have known that, but I, I just happened to hear it live. Hmm. But I knew what it actually sounded like. And I felt bad for her because obviously she was performing at a place that wasn't meant to be a concert hall. And so I'm sure the acoustics were dreadful. So yeah. the Berlin Wall. And so yeah. you hear anything, you know, right? right. So, but, but, but um, yeah, pitch correction. I mean, things like that will just continue to get better. But yes, I, I kind of, I, I think that probably people, I think if they want to play a character in a song, then yeah, they might want to do things to their voice to be that character. Yes. You know, that's another thing about Joni's later voice is that, um, you know, on Chalk Mark and a Rainstorm, which was 88, um, when she was 45, um, probably 44 when she was recording it, um, there's a song on that album called um, Beat of Black Wings. And it's about, it's based on a soldier that she met when she was performing at, at Fort Bragg um, and, um, in, in North Carolina. Um, and um, he was this like bitter guy whose life had been ruined. And if Joni had, uh, had written that song in 69 and sang it in 69, she wouldn't have had that voice. Yeah. But she sang in 88. And she had the voice of this character, Killer Kyle. Yeah, it's a fascinating journey. Um, we're almost at an hour here. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Okay. No, no um, what do you think is musically? She's still beloved. Um, she's still living. She's planning concerts. And so some ways when people are alive, talking about their legacy maybe feels... Um, uh, not premature, but like you're sort of playing the get off the stage music. Um, wh what do you think her legacy is, though, in terms of popular music or just music in general? Well, a few things. One, it's the pop song as an art song. You know, um, Dylan was like a folk song and a rock song as poetry. Mm. That was a big deal. That's what the Nobel was for. Um, Joni, um, she's not that interested in poetry, which is strange for someone who writes such beautiful poetic lyrics. Yeah. But she's not. She's not. She's, she's a painter and she's interested in movies much more than she's interested in poems or books or novels, um, movies. And so, but the art song, there's, there's, there's this guy named John Kelly um, who does, um, who, who has performed as Joni Mitchell. And she's like, she's actually gone to see him and like, and she dressed in the same outfit that he dressed in just to like confuse people. Um, but she was into him. And he has a classical background, and so he's the one that told her about Schubert and the and the art song, and that and he persuaded her that she was of the art song tradition. And um, 
and I, I, I think it's true. And I think it was true without her knowing anything about Schubert. She didn't need to know anything about Schubert to know that. And like you, you hear that right away on Sanctuary Seagull, right away. Uh, every one of those songs is an art song. They're, they're beautiful. They tell stories. They're poetic. Um, th they're cinematic. Um, they, right away, she's got everything, everything you want. And, and she held back her hits. She had already written both sides now, didn't include it. She'd already written Circle Game, didn't include it. You know, she she like held back her most well-loved songs that she'd already written um, to, to, to make a work of art because this yeah. was the way she wanted to do it. And, um, you know, these, these recordings are going to live beyond us, certainly beyond me, but even beyond you. Uh, these recordings are going to live forever uh, or, you know, they're going to live as long as people are, are listening to music. Yeah. But uh, but the conditions under which they were made cannot be replicated. And, um, you know, you no longer have monetized music, which is great for us because we can snap up everything we want. You know, we can have everything at our fingertips yeah. um, um, uh, through a streaming service. But... Um, and I have Apple, so I can still have Joni and Neil Young. Um, yeah, thank God, right? <laughs> I have Apple, but but I mean, between Apple and YouTube, you basically have anything you want. Like, if it's not an Apple, it's on YouTube. <laughs> um, I'm just saying that the, the availability of this music will continue to be, and, and I'm sure that the technology of that ability will become better. Yeah. It, it has to, um, but but. Um, but the conditions under which it was made, that's not going to happen. I mean, the musicians are not the main attractions anymore. They're just what not. Um, well, technology, really. I mean, movies aren't the main attraction either. I mean, anymore. Um, I, I think it's just all, all, all about... Um, how how to how to speed things up and make things increasingly available and like how to like get inside people's brains and make them attached to technology i think i think that's like the the, the end game of it really isn't it that like we our our brains become you know addicted to this technology and like we yeah that that's a lot of like the social media platforms for sure yeah but that seems to dominate everything including music and yeah. including literature i mean including all of it it seems to just dominate every single thing is there something that you care about it's in there and and i and i i i mean you're a technology person so you would know more than i would obviously um but i i i just think um i'm not saying that like there's not going to be like a record that comes out that people love. Of course, that's going to happen. And some of those records will be good records. Um, you know, um, like, you know, like, like Billie Eilish, like there'll be interesting people like yeah. that. You know? yeah. Um, you um, like her? Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I loved, um, I love Fiona Apple. I love vegetable cutters. That, that album blew my mind. I thought that was extraordinary. Mm -hmm. I like St. Vincent a lot. Um, 
we seem to be like past the rock band, you know, like Radiohead seemed to be like the last big band, right? Who can you think of a rock band that most people care about whose members are under the age of 40? Uh, no, I mean, may, maybe there are names, but when, when you say like Radiohead, not a rock band like Radiohead, where people are like, oh. oh, this is a rock band and they're like on the cutting edge of stuff. Right. Yeah, can't think of it. I mean, like, remember bands? Like, I never thought that bands would go out, you know? That was, <laughs> that, that's so strange. But, um, but, but like, Fetch the Bolt Cutters made me feel like it was really like of its moment. And it was great. I I, I love yeah. Fiona Apple. I love everything she does. But that that album particularly, just like it, it, the mood that we were all in at the beginning of quarantine, like it was like the ultimate soundtrack yeah. of quarantine. Um, yeah. But um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm I'm not I'm not optimistic really about people having an incentive to do it. I think that there are always going to be really talented people around, but like. It's just Jonia under publishing and, uh, and, and she got rich off her publishing. Yeah. You know, and, and Judy Collins had a lot to do with that. I mean, she, she paid cash for the house that she lives in right now. In 1974, she paid cash for that house in Bel Air. You know, this is just a completely different reality. Um, yeah. I I just think uh, you know the artist. I mean, oh no! I I I just um. Well, first of all, just like even getting people to just like listen to an album, an entire all album, through. yeah, hard. That's a big commitment. I mean, and I know. I guess people listen to Taylor Swift albums all the way through, but um, I guess people listen to Kanye all the way through. Um, But I just, um, you know, and like, 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 like uh, St. Vincent, she did, um, she did an ad and I saw it in the New Yorker. It was like, she did a, a, was it a Chloe ad or something like that? She did like some big perfume ad. It was like a two page thing. And I thought, Joni, would never have done that but then Joni didn't need to do that because she was making money on her records and on her concerts yeah you know? and um it's just, just yeah. it, it's I mean, a weird yeah. it's a weird world with tiktok and things having these, like 15 seconds clips and like that's a big way that like songs become popular now is if you're engineered to go viral on tiktok you know and if you have like 15 seconds of something that hooks people that is representative of the whole thing if it's if it's a this if it's it's, i mean it's like it's a synecdoche of a song yeah tiktok is synecdoche um and it's just like how do you get a song across in 15 seconds like what kind of song will something just super catchy and something really catchy i mean i think like heya would have worked in that format yes yeah. that's, that's a great song but um no i don't but i i guess we're i'm i'm, I'm deviating a little bit for this legacy question i guess the legacy question would be that um you know when when she 
was in the moment when she could do what she could do. She went as deep as anybody could go. And I'm going to quote David Crosby. He said, you know, when, when people look back on the greatest singer-songwriters, it'll be Joni and Dylan. And Joni is by far the better musician. I agree with that, yeah. Sure. You know, and that's just, that's a good way of putting it. Um, so I would agree with David Crosby on that. And um, as much as I love Dylan, and as much as I think Dylan's kind of underrated as a singer too, I, I, I still agree with that. Um, but um, it, I mean, Joni said one of her favorite compliments or her favorite compliment was from this black woman at the Grammys who said, girl, you make me see pictures in my head. Oh, wow. And I think that that's what she wanted to do. She wanted, she, she, she wanted to create the cinema of song. Yeah, moving pictures, moving paintings, maybe. You know? Yep. And, and, and she just, and she wanted to make people feel things. And, and confront things in themselves that they might not have done if it wasn't for this music and and how this music is associated with like intimacy and vulnerability and um disclosure you know um she didn't like being called a confessional poet my friend Stephen holden called her that she really hated that um she, she said it was more like disclosure or she you know, she's, she called herself a penitent in spirit. Hmm. Um, but um, I, I think it's, um, you know, she, I, you know, obviously, you know, there was beautiful music before her and beautiful music after her. But I think that she took advantage of this moment where the disclosure ran deeper. Like, Imagine if the Beatles had made a pl plastic owner band. Yeah. What if plastic owner band had been like the starting point? And then like John went deeper into his personal writing, Paul went deeper into what he was doing with melody and harmony, and, uh, and uh, George went deeper into spiritual stuff. And, you know, what if they had just really like revealed who they, they were in this way? You know what I mean? Like if they had continued into the 70s, yeah. um, I, I, you know, in a way, like Joni gives you a sense of what that might have been like, mm. you know, like when, when you just have that level of musical language. I mean, it's just, I think people are going to be trying to figure out the Beatles forever. Like, yeah. I feel like. I think it was beyond like what any of the four of them even could really realize what it was. And like, and they didn't have any distance from it. So they couldn't really even realize like why people are going so bananas over this music. Um, but, yeah. uh, but like, I think Joni will be part of that conversation though, or it should be of like, when, when you have this music, it starts off as, you know, I want to hold your hand and, it starts off with these like adolescent love songs she was just 17 you know what i mean you know it starts off like that it's great but i mean it just kind of keeps going and you know they become they become adults you know 
and 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 every and people are growing up with them and uh and they just kind of keep going and keep going and it's just all it's just beautiful you know and uh yeah. and i think joni sort of picked up on that moment i mean she liked the beatles i don't i mean but i don't think she consciously thought that she was going to put herself into an arena with the beatles but but she liked the beatles she liked rubber soul and stuff you know yeah and um she was friends with George. Um, she was a guest at, at, at you know George's home. Got she got to know Olivia. Um, she only met John once. He was rude, and uh, he was rude. And, uh, and she met McCartney, but she didn't really meet him. Like she met him, but she said she didn't really feel like she met him. I mean, uh, and then I pointed out to her, you know, that they she sings background on like say like caroline on my mind the james taylor record she's like yeah. in the background on that well paul's the bass player on oh, the record. Yeah. yeah and so like i actually asked her i was like were you all in the studio? <laughs> she's not hanging said, no, no 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 that was just the magic no no they yeah. weren't in the studio at the same time they like mailed it in or something but wow. uh, because you know james taylor was an apple records discovery and okay. uh, so that that's why Paul had this connection to his early records, because yeah. uh, he it was part of his investment <laughs> in Apple Records. <laughs> um, but I mean, I, yeah. I just I just like, I mean, I I really hope that like, I'm I'm glad to see that more people know who Nick Drake is, um, and I'm I you know I hope more people know who Elliot Smith is. Yes. No. Yeah. I, I and I find a lot of young people love Elliot Smith. Like young people, they yeah. really connect to that music. Teenagers, they feel that music. Absolutely. It's so beautiful. Oh my god. And um, you know, and I and I hope people know who Judy Sill is. And um, the nice thing about the world that we live in now. Is that when I was a teenager, you couldn't find Judy Sill, you couldn't find Nick Drake. It took a while for that stuff to be reissued and available. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was getting into the Velvet Underground like as soon as they were becoming available through reissues, like Polygram was reissuing the Velvet Underground mm. the year that I got into them. Yeah, it must have been so much harder to be like a, a music connoisseur back then. It was because especially because I had to, I didn't really have money for records. And so I had, yeah. you know, every everything was an investment and you couldn't listen to things before. You had to like, and so when I was 14, um Rolling Stone did the first of their many, many, many lists of the greatest whatever, whatever. Yeah, the very first time they did it, it seemed like a big deal because they hadn't done it before. And I was a Rolling Stone subscriber, and so when they came out with the hundred best records ever made, there's only one Joni Mitchell album on that list, and it's blue, and it's way down the list too. And and uh, but the top ten, I still remember it. It was Sgt. Pepper, and this this will really date it. You will not believe this. But in 1987, and this is from a committee of rock critics, right? Yeah. Number two record. You will not believe what it was. You will not believe it. I 
I think I saw one iteration of the hundred best. I feel like number two was Sergeant Pepper. No, number one was Sergeant Pepper. Number one. Okay. Um, Pet Sounds. See, that's now. Okay. Okay. That's yeah. Now. That's what they're saying now. This was, to be fair to them, this was like the best hundred records of the last 20 years because Rolling yeah. Stone started in 67. So nothing before 67. So no Pet Sounds. Okay. No Blonde uh, on Blonde. No Revolver. You know, no. Yeah. Yeah. But you will not believe what they said was the number two record of the last 20 years between 67 and 87. You will mm-hmm. not believe it. Is never find the bollocks. Never mind the bollocks. Here's the Sex Pistols. Really? Yeah, it was number two for them in 1987. It's that a good record. Yeah. yeah. Who's going to think that now? Come on. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two. And then the rest of it, I can't remember it in order, but Ziggy Stardust was in the top 10. Inner Visions was in the top 10. What's Going On was in the top 10. Uh, I think Astral Weeks was in the top 10. And um, um, maybe there was another Beatles album in the top 10. I can't remember. Um, I think like Aretha was pretty high up. Um, I never loved a man the way I loved you. Oh, but like of the four Velvet Underground albums, Three of them were in the top 100, and one of them was in the Velodrome Grand Anika was in the top 10, and and that's when I bought that's when I started buying Velvet Underground to hear what this was all about, you know, and and um, so like uh, I somehow was like my mother was listening to talk radio when Anthony to Curtis was on talking about this thing. And I, I don't know, I somehow like got, I, I called, I wanted to talk to Anthony to Curtis and argue with them. And because uh, they had only one Steely Dan album, which I thought was just awful. They, they had Katie lied and it was near the bottom. And so I wanted to argue about Steely Dan and I wanted to argue about, and oh, I, I thought um, Empty Glass should have been there. Pete Townsend Empty Glass should have been there. Okay. And, uh, and also, I was very fond of All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes, which is a harder record to defend. But at the time, I really liked it. I don't know. I like, I, I wanted to argue with him about a whole range of things. And at the end of the, our little exchange, he said, well, you know, I don't agree with you, but I hope that when you graduate from college, you apply for a job at Rolling Stone. Hmm. And then I met Anthony when I was like 30. Yeah. And- and I was writing for this magazine that he edited called Tracks. And I reminded him of this conversation. <laughs> and so, and it would come up sometimes like when we'd, when we'd be in public together because he he he, had, he didn't remember it, but he, he liked the story. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, well, look, it has been uh, truly a pleasure to talk oh, thank to you. Um, Likewise. About- uh, not just Joni Mitchell, but about a ton of things. I mean, I, I feel like we could keep going, but I, I, I normally try to keep it at an hour. Um, but hey, did you did you did you did you take um, Alice Eccles at USC? No, I didn't. So I was taking a bunch of uh, computer science classes. Unfortunately, uh, well, fortunately and not fortunately, but so I, I, I dip my toes in those waters. Um, actually, it's funny that um, 
earlier when you brought up the whole uh, everything being on the phone and music being on the phone, and you said literature, you know, being on the phone. Yes. And I, I, um, I, I would, then this, this may be another discursive thing that, but I would say that music has integrated technology way more than literature. I mean, the form of literature is still the same. It's a book and now it's on your phone. Whereas there are all kinds of new instruments and uh, ways of production, like Billie Eilish made their album in their bedroom, you right. know, and it's not Fiona possible. Fiona Apple too. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, no, that that really. I mean, I I interviewed Elvis Costello a couple of years ago, and that that came up when he was just aware of like what that freedom was because he still had to go to recording studios. Yeah, and uh, the, like because there is such an intimacy to that, um, and and I'm sure that that will all improve. And um, I'm actually starting work on a, a YA novel now that I'm, where I'm going to use original songs, and mm. um, so I want to use the technology. Like like the scanning technology that people you can know, you can scan it with your phone or you put with the yeah code. yeah yeah QR codes stuff yeah QR codes yeah. exactly and then you can hear the song that's um that's fascinating I, I I'm interested to uh, see where that goes if maybe like have... and maybe young people are more <laughs> adept to that I think they probably are yes because it's like if you do it on a menu totally. It, like if you do it on a menu you you do it in your book and you want to hear this song that this character yeah. is yeah i i think that'd be great um yeah. i i'm again conscious of taking up too much of your time here but no, if no, you no, got no. if you got 60 seconds after this phone call i'm I'm working on a project that i i you might be interested in that does that kind of thing oh, cool. um, but uh before we go i wanted to mention uh you have a sub stack uh can yes. you tell people um about it how to how to reach it yes the sub stack is um my name david yaffe uh, D-A-V-I-D-Y-A-F-F-E dot substack, all lowercase letters, davidyaffe.substack.com. Cool. And I've had, I've been posting for about a year and I've found that it's a, it's a very free way to, to write. And um, I've, in a way, I've heard, I've never experienced this myself, but people that have had like good therapy, they say, that things come out of their mouth where they surprise themselves. Mm. And I found that I've done this in Substack. And I'm not saying that writing is therapy. I'm not saying that I want people to read my therapy, but I am saying that um, I sort of brought something out that was um, raw emotionally, though I still wanted to make it beautiful. And um, I'd say maybe 80% of it's about music, maybe more than that. Um, but, um, it, it was just kind of wonderful to be freed from journalism as I knew it, Yeah, you know, getting to write about things that it wouldn't otherwise get to write about. And, uh, um, it, it's definitely brought me to a better place as a writer than I would have been if I hadn't done it. Oh, I can imagine. But I, but I just think that like if if people want to um, share emotional experiences with music, this is the place to do it. Nice. Um, yeah, and then you get to have it, and you get to have a dialogue. So like if if like you send me a message, I'll get a, an alert, and then 
I'll respond to your message. Oh, sweet. So people can actually engage you as readers. Nice. Well, uh, once again, thank you very much for your time. David Appreciate talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to David Yaffe, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gaming. See you next time.